Happy Halloween to all of our Over My Dead Pod listeners, and welcome to our very first Halloween special. Woo! Woo Um, I'm going to host today's little special. I'm Kylie Caldwell. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Holly Spear. And we're going to share some scary stories with you. We all have some stories. We even have a little special guest. And I say we just jump right into our first story, as told by Kate. Take it away. All right, everybody. So if you're listening to this story on one of our uh, platforms like Spotify or Apple, go ahead and stop what you're doing um, and head to our YouTube page because this special, we're actually doing a full video of us recording together. We're all on Zoom. Um, This is going to be a non-edited, no cuts, just straight up us talking through our stories. So on, a, on account of everyone, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for all the mistakes we're probably going to make, but it's going to be fun and I hope you enjoy it. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into my story. So I am not going to tell you the name of it. You don't really know yet, but here we go. So Lisa Ann French was born on June 2nd, 1964 in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Historically, this town, Fond du Lac, has been named one of the top 20 safetyest cities in the U.S. But as of three years ago in 2020, it was rated 138th just in Wisconsin. So obviously a lot of like safety things have changed since the 1960s. But in the early 1970s, It was basically like any other Midwestern small town in America. It looked like one of those movies, especially during the holidays. Everything's in walking distance. Every house has decor put up, etc. So Lisa French lived at 192 Armory Street in Northeast Wisconsin with her mother, Marianne, and her stepfather, Bruce. And then she had a baby brother named Michael. Lisa's, Lisa's French actual father is named Alan and he owned a duplex in the neighborhood so he lived close by and saw her often so everything was really good in the French family no like bad blood between the couples and on Halloween night of 1973 Lisa was just nine years old and she was a fourth grader at a school called Chegwin Chegwin Elementary School Lisa was this really cute little girl she had brown hair she had this shaggy brown haircut a really like friendly smile. And at the time when she was nine years old, she was missing a few of her front teeth. So she was super cute. Her mom, Marianne worked at a local hair salon. So Lisa often had like the latest and cutest haircuts. Now Lisa's best friend was named Ann Parker. And Ann would describe Lisa as like this fun, bubbly, outgoing girl. And on that Halloween night in 1973, Armory Street was lit up. Almost every house on the block had decorations. All the porch lights were on, like ready for trick-or-treaters. And one block over on a street called East Bank, a group of parents were hosting this block party called the Pumpkin Place. And around this time in the 1970s, there were a lot of cases of Halloween candy poisonings that were going through America, which still to this day kind of scares me. Um, And razors and candy apples or razors put in the candy. And it was something that a lot of parents had to keep an eye out for in their children's candy. So this was one of the reasons that the neighborhood parents created this annual pumpkin place, like block party get together. It was like a safe place that all of their kids could go out in the neighborhood and go trick or treating. And the parents could really monitor like what was given out. Uh, I have a question. Sorry. Yeah. 
did your guys' parents ever like go in and check all of your candy before you could eat it? When you got hot. Yes. Mine did. Yeah. No. Never sad. No. I thought that was like a huge myth, like of people putting stuff in candy. It is, but my parents still, you know. <laughs> I don't think like mine mine always went through it, but I mean they never found anything, but it hundred percent not a myth. Oh. Um people used to put like razors in candy or I mean that was kind of back then. I would say more so right now. It's like drugs being put in candy. Um, like that some kids like OD. That doesn't make sense to me. Who's giving away free drugs? Right. Yeah. And also, like, you don't know. You don't get to see the aftermath. So, like, what's the point of drugging the kid? I mean, that sounds horrible, but you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah, why would you? It's a lot of money being spent for no reason, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, Holly, not a math. Not a math real thing and apparently and we're in the 70s remember and we don't trust a lot of the 70s so yes um so lisa and her friend ann both nine years old had planned to go out to the pumpkin place together and they were going to meet another friend there as well but that night ann got in trouble with her parents and she was grounded so she wasn't allowed to go out for halloween which totally sucks so this left lisa alone for the night and she decided she still wanted to go to the pumpkin place and her parents decided that she would be allowed to go and actually let her trick-or-treat at some of the houses in the neighborhood on the way there, as long as it was houses of people she knew. So Lisa was really excited to go out and trick-or-treat, and this was the first year her parents were going to let her do it by herself. Um, I would say nine is a little young, in my opinion, to go out by yourself, but you're in a neighborhood that you know everyone. There wasn't anything like scary, crazy ahead of time. And she was going to a place with a lot of parents. So like, I get where her family comes from. This was also a long time ago. I think nowadays, I don't know if nine-year-olds go out by themselves. I feel like there's probably parents like watching from the corner or something. I feel um, like I'd feel comfortable with that if I knew all the parents and it was just yeah. like, maybe right down the road or something. Right. But yeah. Nine, like somebody's going to be watching her. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So that night, Lisa raced through the dinner. She wasn't able to contain her excitement. And this year she was dressing up as a butterfly, but it ended up being too cold outside. So her mom did like a last minute costume and Lisa went as a hobo instead, which I just, I love big change of costume. Um, so Lisa's mom bundled her up in a green parka with masking tape, covering some like holes in her jeans. She had a floppy hat. And then a final touch was they painted these cute, like little freckles on her face. So Lisa left their house around 6 p.m. and she had a 7 p.m. curfew. So like to me, that makes it a lot better. Like she was only going to be out for an hour, you know, like that's we're good. We're there before, you know, it gets dark at night or maybe a little bit dark. But Lisa knew three houses in the neighborhood that she was going to before going to the pumpkin place. So the first one belonged to a teacher. Um, the second one was a house across the street where one of her classmates lived. And then the third one was a home of a man named Gerald Miles Turner Jr. So Gerald at this time was in his mid-20s and he worked as a machinist for the local railroad. He was divorced but had two kids. And a few months before Halloween, he had actually rented out that other half of the duplex in the neighborhood that's owned by um, Lisa's dad. So him and his girlfriend, her name's Arlene, they had recently moved into the house nearby with their new baby 
And Lisa and her family really liked Gerald. Like he was young, cool. She would often often visit him and his girlfriend to like talk, play on the porch with the baby. And she would even take the baby on walks in a stroller, which is adorable. And so he was considered a family friend of the French's and Lisa had no reason to be afraid of him. What Lisa and her parents didn't know at the time is that apparently a year before Halloween this, this year, he had been charged with statutory rape of a 15-year-old babysitter. But apparently the charges were dropped, nothing really came from it, and he was never punished or convicted. So, as far as we know, Lisa left her house around 6 p.m. to go visit the three houses in her neighborhood, but by 7 p.m. when her curfew had set in place, Lisa never showed up back home. And for a little while, her mother, Marianne, was like, it's fine, she's just running behind. But around 7.30, Marianne began to worry. And she decided to call the police shortly after because she knew something wasn't right. And unfortunately, by 10 p.m., a search was underway for Lisa. The local PTA was also really well organized and included a lot of parents in the neighborhood. And they had a program called Block Parents. And the leader, Betty, started calling parents in the neighborhoods immediately to like tell them about Lisa being missing and asking questions. And about in that night, about 50 families were contacted about Lisa's disappearance and they all sprang into action immediately. They, everybody turned on their porch lights. People were putting signs up that like gave information about Lisa. And it turns out about 5,000 people ended up volunteering that night to help look for her. Wow. But she, which I'm like, I don't even know if I have that. Well, like, I don't even know five people, you know, nearby. Like, that's a lot of people. Um, so, but she was nowhere to be found. And again, this is a really small town. So basically, it sounds like the whole town was like Halloween night, little girl missing. Let's spring into action. Um, eventually, the search widened their parameters and police ended up dra- dra- dragging the local rivers and lakes because, as we all know, Unfortunately, after a certain point that someone goes missing, the method for like the search changes and they start considering like, if the person's deceased, where would you look? Like, where would a body be dumped? Um, And a local Photoshop printed about 6,000 posters of Lisa's school picture and description on it. And they started posting these all throughout town and outside of town. And even, this is like my favorite part, a local gas station offered anyone helping with the search of Lisa 25 gallons of free gas to like go out and search and i know like gas wasn't that expensive back then but like could you imagine if gas stations did that now like that's i'm like 25 gallons that's a my car doesn't fit that but that's a lot you know that's that's a very creative idea it's genius i mean if they were doing that now we'd find a lot more people absolutely i'd be out all the time i'd be like fill my baby up we're gonna go look for the little kid you know um so that saturday morning which was november 3rd three days after halloween a farmer named gerald braun not related to the gerald i mentioned earlier was riding his tractor on his property in the town of Techita, which is about four miles outside of fond du Lac. and he was in this wooded area off of highway 49 when he spotted two trash bags that looked that like they had been tossed from the road So he went over to the trash bags. They weren't supposed to be there. And he opened up these trash bags. And inside one of them was Lisa's clothes, the costume, and a bag of candy. And then inside the other trash bag was Lisa's battered, naked body. 
After finding this, the farmer called the police, but somehow, small community, people in the community got there before the police did. And there was even like a quote in a newspaper that this local reverend had climbed a barbed wire fence, cutting his hands in order to get to Lisa's body. And when he knelt down next to her to pray, he was crying with grief as the police like showed up behind him. Um, and more people just kept arriving and no one can contain their emotions. It was just a really sad scene. I mean, you can imagine small town, everybody for three days was searching for this little girl and then a horrific scene found in some trash bags like right outside of town um really really sad so the authorities soon arrived to remove lisa's body and this included a sheriff a deputy the head of state crime lab field team and a special investigator for the district attorney's office lisa's funeral ended up being held at the local lutheran church on november 6 1973 and the whole community came out to support Lisa's family. It was so packed in this church that there wasn't even standing room inside anymore. Like people were just outside the church surrounding it. Um, so Lisa was only nine years old at the time of her death. Lisa's mom, Marianne, chose a white casket for Lisa and dressed her in the same dress that she wore for picture day, which is like so cute. And since Marianne was a hairstylist, she did Lisa's hair herself just like she did every morning before school. And the day after the funeral, Marianne actually found a note tucked in Lisa's Bible in her bedroom at home. And Lisa had been writing these like uplifting like messages, like saying like, smile, God loves you. If you ask Jesus to take over, you'll begin a whole new life and stuff like that. And it was really cute little words. And Marianne treasured this note, believing it was like, a way to show how like kind Lisa was for such a young age. Um, soon after Lisa's body was found, police started questioning witnesses. They talked to everyone in the neighborhood and pieced together the houses that Lisa had stopped at the night on of Halloween. Um, the day after Lisa disappeared, they went and questioned one of the neighbors, Gerald Turner. They were suspicious of him and thought that he could possibly be involved, but they didn't have any evidence. So for months, police kept going back to Gerald, questioning him, just thinking like something is red flagging on their radar, like thinking he might be involved. And at some point when they were talking to him, Gerald's story started to change a little bit. So his details weren't consistent. And of course the police asked for him to take a polygraph test, which we don't even need to talk about. You know my thoughts, you know my feelings, don't do it. Um, at first, Gerald refused to do it, which kudos to him, even though different situation. But around mid-1974, he ended up agreeing to take it. And the results came back as inconclusive, which is never a good sign. Um, but that gave the polygraph itself, because they were able to ask him some more questions, it gave the police more information to work with. They knew that his house was the last one that Lisa had stopped on on Halloween. So he, there's a really good chance he was the last person to see her alive. And after nine months of questioning, Gerald finally confessed. He was arrested on August 9th, 1974 and charged with first degree murder. That exact same month, Lisa's mom ended up giving birth to her third child, which was kind of a blessing for the family. Um, it was, you know, a tragedy followed by a blessing kind of thing. I can't imagine going through any of that. But with her toddler and a newborn, Marianne spent the next year going to court and testifying for her deceased daughter. Now, 
little trigger warning, but the details of Gerald's confession are pretty horrific, just to warn you guys. So according to Gerald, his account of Halloween 1973 went a little something like this. He told police that his girlfriend, Arlene, had took their baby to the pumpkin place without him. And while she was gone, Lisa came by the house. The door was open. And so Lisa looked around the corner to see if anybody was home. And when she saw Gerald, he said her face lit up. And at that point, he felt very sexually motivated to attack her. But he said that he didn't want to kill her and had no plans of doing so. So, which like, whatever. We don't, we don't care at this point. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, thanks for that detail. Um, so Gerald then took Lisa to his bedroom, stripped off her clothes, and he raped her. And apparently this rape was a really violent attack because at one point he noticed that Lisa was no longer breathing. So according to Gerald, he tried to do CPR, but she was already gone. So Gerald heard his girlfriend Arlene get home around 7.30. He put socks over his hands to avoid leaving fingerprints and he moved Lisa's body to the bathtub in his house. Which I'm like, your fingerprints are probably everywhere anyways, you know, like amongst other things. Um, And Arlene found Gerald sitting in their living room couch in a robe. And at that moment, Arlene was like, we're supposed to go to my mom's house for Halloween. But when she got back, Gerald told her that she wasn't, he wasn't feeling well and encouraged her to go without him. So Arlene left the house briefly, but then remembered her mom wasn't going to be home till a certain time. Like there was just timing issues were off. So she came back inside and while Arlene was in the house waiting to leave again, she said that Gerald just kept going in and out of the bedroom and he was doing it like really weirdly. He was acting strange, but to her at the time, she didn't think anything of it because she obviously didn't know anything had happened. And after a little while, she ended up leaving again with the baby and Gerald went right back to work. He said that he was trying to cover up his crime He wasn't really sure if Lisa was quite dead all the way, but he shoved her body into a garbage bag anyways. Um, He wiped off Lisa's shoes and clothes to get rid of fingerprints and shoved all of her belongings into another garbage bag. And that's when Gerald said that he drove a few miles out of town and dumped both the bags in the field. So Gerald's confession wasn't the only evidence that investigators had because they also found hair that matched his inside the garbage bags and on Lisa's body. So he, he wouldn't have gotten, you know, away with it with just his confession anyways. But when the medical examiners, and this is really sad, but when the medical examiner's report came back for Lisa's body, it said that her cause of death was asphyxiation following a heart attack. So it wasn't that she was smothered or strangled. She actually had died of shock at the physical and emotional trauma of being raped yikes which is when i read that i was doing research and when i read that because i was like what okay so she died of a heart attack asphyxiation but then it literally in the medical report says like she basically died from anxiety like she had shock because of what was happening and had a heart attack and died Hmm. which is like horrible um and but because this nature of this crime and it's like obviously a really cute kid and she's young 
the news took this story and spread it throughout all of Wisconsin and it hit headlines all over the country as well. And of course, media loves to give nicknames to awful events and killers and stuff. So Gerald Turner became the Halloween killer. Gerald's case went to trial and during the trial, he ended up recanting his confession, of course. And he said that police had been harassing him for months and he wrote the confession just to get them to shut up. But multiple women during the trial testified that Gerald was abusive and had raped them as well, including that 15-year-old babysitter and as well as two of his ex-partners. So at this point, we know he's like a serial rapist and a horrible person. Um, Robert Owens was a psychologist that had met with Gerald while he was in prison. And Robert testified in court that Gerald had a cold disregard for people, but especially for women. And that Gerald had no conscious control over his impulse for pleasure and had no ability to conform to society's expectations around sexual violence. But the doctor who performed Lisa's autopsy also testified and explained that um, Lisa had died by death by shock, which to sum it up, basically the trauma that Lisa had endured during this attack caused her heart to stop. Um, and it was just that her body shut down after that. So the heart attack didn't stop the blood circulation. Oxygen wasn't being like circulated. Um, and it caused an asphyxiation. So the doctor said that Lisa did die immediately after the attack or even during it at some point. So uh, pros and cons of a horrible situation, but with all the evidence and witness testimony against him, the jury did find Gerald Turner guilty of second degree murder as well as enticing a child for moral purposes, indecent behavior with a child, and sexual perversion. But the jury rejected the first-degree murder charge, though, because that meant... Well, let me take that back. So when they rejected the first-degree murder charge, that meant Gerald wasn't going to get a full life sentence. Um, because with, as we know, with first-degree murder, you have to have like the premeditation that comes with it. And at this moment, we just have the story of Gerald saying like, I was attacking her. I wasn't going to kill her, you know, and Lisa literally did die from a heart attack. Um, so Gerald was sentenced to 38 years and six months in prison. And he started serving his prison time on February 3rd, 1975. And during his sentencing, the judge stressed that like Gerald showed no regret, no remorse for his actions. And Marianne was at the trial and she still remembers that Gerald turned around to her at some point and said, I didn't mean to do it, which like, I don't give a shit. Like, don't talk, still, don't talk to me. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> Dis disgusting. So, um, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin changed really, really badly after this event during, especially during Halloween, it ended up becoming a daytime holiday. No one was allowed to go out at night. Um, cities across Wisconsin started to follow this rule as well. And there was even some laws passed about like the days and hours that kids could go outside during Halloween just for safety purposes. So in the late seventies, Gerald started working for the prison's kitchen dock and he would receive like shipments, unload food and other supplies. And he really kept his head down, didn't talk to other inmates. And in prison, people like Gerald, this is still true to this day, are called baby rapers, which is not good. That's like one of the worst categories you could be while in prison. And everyone hates you. And if Gerald even looked at other prisoners, he would be attacked, um, you know, which, uh, you know, we're fine with. But what, what? even, yeah, like <laughs> boohoo. 
So even though he was playing it safe under the radar in prison, doesn't mean that he wasn't still a violent and dangerous person. And records in his prison profile showed that at some point he was like waiting for the an appointment with the prison dentist, but instead he didn't want to wait, so he just like pulled out his own teeth. Um, can't imagine that just makes my jaw hurt. But uh, there was even an educational director at the prison who's, like, in charge of, like, all the mail and books and magazines that, like, come into the prisoners. And one day, an envelope came in for Gerald that he had, like, bought for himself. And it was a magazine from another country, and it was filled with, like, this, like, hardcore sexual bondage. And um, the director didn't approve for Gerald to see this. And Gerald had received a written explanation for like why it wasn't approved, but Gerald didn't take this well. And so he decided to sue the director and the prison's warren, which I didn't even know you could do while you were in prison. But get this, a year and a half later, a judge ruled in Gerald's favor and ordered that he be allowed to have the magazine. Yeah, I'm also confused as to how you order magazines while you're in prison. (laughs) Yeah. I just uh you know like the food catalog they all i don't know how he got away with it but like and then he sues them for not being able to have it and wins i don't get it i don't get it yeah. at all so no. at some point while he was in prison gerald wrote a letter that was addressed to lisa um and this wasn't released until 1999 so we didn't have it like during this time frame and stuff but the letter was basically a confession and the letter said quote unquote I doubt I could ever fully realize the terror you experienced at my hands. I still see you standing there in the doorway with that beaming hat, having recognized me. I see the delight in your eyes turn to fear as I close the door behind you. And for the rest of my life, I will have to live with what I did to you. On that night, I became a monster. After serving 17 years and 18 months of his sentence, Gerald was released on parole for good behavior but just keep it with the story because it gets it gets better for us trust me so gerald was released in 1992 and after 17 years and the people of wisconsin were like pissed off they organized multiple protests about it and because he was paroled wisconsin created a uh, sexual predator law known as turner's law and this allows them to send a convict convicted sex offender to a mental institution after they're paroled if they believe the person is still a danger to society which like thank you great law let's also put it in effect. weird you're like okay they're good enough to get out on parole but now we're going to go to the mental institution now we're going to make this law that is named after jared turner yeah for him yeah i, I don't know if that's entirely ethical but i'm okay with it in this case Yes, yeah. it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I don't yeah. feel bad for him, but like you're kinda like he got screwed by a law telling him like now he's gonna go to a mental institution. So, anyways, so Gerald was sent to a halfway house in Milwaukee and he moved into his own apartment eventually. And Lisa's family and many people in the community were devastated that this killer was free, especially only after 17 years. So the people of Fond du Lac came together and they filed a lawsuit. Um, they said that Gerald's release date, release date had been miscalculated by the state. And then at some point the state admitted that there was a mistake and Gerald, which I don't get this. They were like, oopsies. Uh, Gerald was sent back to prison in 1993 by the Wisconsin court of appeals. Um, 
But then their decision was reversed by the state Supreme Court a year later in 1994, and he was released from prison again. So this dude's just like bouncing back and forth. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I love Wisconsin, but like maybe in the 70s, I don't know what was going on, or 90s at this point. Um, So under Turner's law, which was eventually created because he had been paroled early, Gerald was sent to a psychiatric hospital. And the Department of Justice could keep them keep him there as long as they provided that he was a sexually violent person that shouldn't be released to the public and would most likely reoffend. So in 1998, Gerald went on trial to determine if he should be sta- like stayed locked up in the hospital um, or be released on parole. During this trial, four women testified that he had violently raped them, including that 15-year-old babysitter, both of his ex-partners, and his ex-wives. So a psychiatrist testified on Gerald's behalf, though, and this is a great number, so listen to this. So a psychiatrist testified on Gerald's behalf, saying that there was a 20% chance that Gerald would commit another violent crime within the next seven years. And I'm like, I read that, and I was like, wait a minute. Is that a benefit for Gerald by the site, like psychiatrist saying this? How do you calculate that? How do you measure that? Yeah. 20% chance he would commit another violent sexual crime in the next seven years. I would like any chance. Like 5%. No chance. There shouldn't be a chance. chance. Yeah. If there's any percentage, back to jail. Back to straight to jail. Straight to jail. Um, so at some point they even gave Gerald medication to like lower his sex drive and help him resist his like sexual urges, which basically proved he would reoffend because the, the medication didn't do anything. So like, what is this medication? What? I I would love to know what the name, it had no name of medication, but it was like, it's going to help him lower sex drive and he's not going to be like a rapist, but (laughs) that doesn't that's not how that works like you can't so despite the testimonies and evidence that was presented the jury ruled that the state did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that gerald was likely to reoffend and commit another sexual crime so he was released on parole once again and this time he was sent to a foster halfway house in madison and also just like back to the medication thing can you imagine just being like all these murderers out on the loose? It's like, but they're on like, they're on meds. On meds, like yeah, yeah. Okay. They're on, they're on Adderall. They're fine. They're not gonna. <laughs> they're they're so Adderalled up right now. Like they're not gonna kill anybody. It's yeah, like they're on their meds. The opposite. Yeah. So he's sent to this foster like halfway house, and the condition of his parole is that he had to like wear an electronic monitor, and he was only allowed to leave the house if he was supervised while doing so. He also was not allowed to be in contact with any children and he was not allowed to possess any pornography. So once again, the community was outraged that Gerald was out and about. And apparently Gerald was like, I love this part too. He was like pissed off with how much attention his case got and he hated, he despised being called the Halloween killer. Um, And he said literally quote unquote, that if he had murdered Lisa any other day than Halloween, no one would have given a damn. I feel like that might be a little true. I, they, they would give a damn. I definitely wouldn't get that much attention. I mean, he wouldn't be called the Halloween killer, but like he literally said, to, like someone quoted him saying like, 
oh, if I had murdered Lisa any other day, nobody would give a damn. But you're like, that's besides the point, Gerald. Like, yeah. that's not what you're supposed to say, you know? Yeah, like, then they just call you a just normal old... The killer. Yeah. <laughs> the Fond du Lac killer, you know, or oh, something. Rapist. Yeah, so... so child rapist Gerald Turner you know like that's what he should be known for anyway so in June of 1998 Gerald was working in the kitchen at that halfway house that he was living at and he apparently threatened a caseworker with a butcher knife which is you know great so state prison officials tried to revoke his parole but for some reason a state division of appeals was like "Eh, we'll let this like we'll let this one go like he's fine so time after time, this justice system just let this like violent kid rapist killer like go free. It it just blows my mind. I and, hate this place. Yeah, love Wisconsin, but like, what the what was going on? Right, I I don't understand. Um, so at some point, as they all do, Gerald tried to find work outside of the halfway house, and he ended up applying to more than a hundred companies, and he even applied to government agencies, which not the smartest idea is he allowed he to trying- do that yeah don't i i think that's not a law like not a rule now you know like you can't you can't apply to government agencies if you're a child rapist or murderer so i don't think any felon can yeah no but the good thing no. is is he was turned down by every single job and at some point he applied for waste management of madison wisconsin and they of course refused to hire him so his caseworker advised him to sue for discrimination so apparently didn't know this wisconsin's one of the several states in america where employers are not allowed to consider prior convictions when it comes to applications um Hmm. i don't even outside of like even taking into account like rape that's insane and murder and murder of a child um so in the summer of 1999 gerald filed a complaint with the state and he filed it against the waste management of Madison, and he claimed that they refused to hire him because he had a criminal record. But waste management claimed that they didn't hire him because of that, but that they didn't hire him because it would violate Gerald's parole. The The job that he applied for was, it involved like him being around dangerous materials, and also kids were brought to the facility for tours all the time. So like, it would go against his parole. Um, but out of who knows why gerald was granted a hearing for this case and so the waste management uh decided to settle the case out of court for an undisclosed amount of money fuck this guy he just like he's he's winning for being a horrible person like it's very yes um so now now we're going to 2003 so 2003 gerald was living in a foster community correctional house in a place called Dayton County, which is still in Wisconsin. And during a routine checkup, his parole officer found that like he had porn in different places all over the house. Uh, he had images and videos on his computer. He had magazines and they were like stuffed all over the place. So he was obviously in violation of his parole. Um, not He had not changed at all. He just got was getting away with it. So while living at the halfway house, Gerald also had tried to unlock the playboy channel on the tv you know like when you, you go late night and you have to like find the subscription and try to pay for it and he also tried to rent movies about serial killers three separate times um so based on these parole violations he was sent back to prison and he eventually was sentenced to 15 more years 
God. So his new release date was February 1st, 2018. And Lisa's family was relieved that this guy was like back in prison. But as his date for release got closer, uh, Lisa's mom, Marianne, decided to take more action. So in October of 2017, she started a petition to get uh, Gerald locked up uh, under his own law, the Turner's Law. She believed that it would be just a matter of time that Gerald would be released and offend again, which, uh, you Obviously. know. Yes. So the Wisconsin Department of Justice also tried to keep Gerald locked up using Turner's Law, which would again send him to a mental facility once he was released from prison. They argued that he like was heavily supervised, constantly monitored, and Gerald still got away with breaking all of the conditions of his parole. So the halfway house like didn't help or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but for him to be qualified to be permanently institutionalized under Turner's Law, the state has to prove that his mental disorders predispose him to commit violent sexual acts. So... In 2018, Gerald was released again, but this time he was sent to a treatment center and the center was run by the Department of Health Services. Um, And his lawyers argued, Gerald's lawyers argued that they should get the case transferred to a different county. Um, And his lawyers believed that he couldn't get a fair trial in Fond du Lac, which like makes sense, but still like he, anyways. So in April of 2018, a judge decided to move the case and then an appeals judge decided to reverse that decision and ruled that the case was going to stay in that same county. So here we are, October of 2023, the Wisconsin state's effort to keep the Halloween killer in custody was allowed to continue per a judge ruling. So Gerald's attorney filed a motion to dismiss this whole case for him being in the mental institution and they argued that his constitutional rights had been violated and that the state like hadn't offered sufficient evidence to prove that Gerald was like mentally insane for his sexual acts. So he was still deemed a sexual predator, but they're trying to get him out of the institution and out into like back the real, the real world. Um, a jury trial has been scheduled for next spring to determine whether Gerald should be released or remain in custody. Following a hearing at the beginning of this month, they said that a four-day jury trial was going to begin on April 16th, 2024. Gerald Turner is currently 73 years old and has been confined at a secure mental health facility in Wisconsin since his prison release date in 2018. So we won't know anything more until April of next year. Um, but that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Gerald Turner, the Halloween killer. So what are y'all doing in April? Do you want to just like take a little trip? <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Let's get some media passes. Yeah. Um, I feel like torches this is, and... I was going to say, this is the one where we like boycott, like and throw tomatoes at him and like just horrible person. I mean, definitely be kicked out of the courtroom for this one. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Like. Can you imagine? I mean, he's 73 now, so he, I mean, he committed the crime when he was like in his 20s. So he has been in for a long time, but he has in and out and with a free place to live and HBO. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like what? And like, and he's broken all of his parole. So like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He's a horrible person. He did something awful. He has not learned. He still has issues. They made a law about him and he can't even, they can't get him to stay in prison. 
ridiculous. Happy Halloween. Hate it. Hated that story. Hate it. I know. I know it's supposed to be like scary and shit, but you really went for it, Kate. Yeah. I did. Yeah. There was a lot of stories I could have done, and then I just got pissed off. So I was like, you know what? This is a good one. Yeah. Now we're all like pissed it. off. Thank you. Now we're all pissed off. So welcome to our podcast. <laughs> Anyways, that's my that's my story for today. great i'm gonna take over something a little different and we're gonna get into it a bit later about another haunted lighthouse me and our special guest have a little personal experience with but i want to share an even spookier one so this is the story of the new london ledge lighthouse and a subsequent missing persons case so for those listening instead of watching which i do not recommend this lighthouse or this lighthouse is a little bit different than what you know you imagine it's actually like it's on like a square barge like out in the water and it just looks like a colonial three-story home on top of the barge so it's not like the long skinny pole on the beach since so only 58 feet tall so the lighthouse began operation in 1909 and it had keepers up until 1939 when the u.s coast guard took over and of course by 1987 the light was automated so another example of technology getting rid of jobs for the working class anyways um enough about the history so visitors and keepers to the lighthouse have reported all sorts of strange things happening so these include doors opening and closing on their own random knocks objects flying across the room electronics turning on and off and of course the foghorn going off without explanation At one point, the Coast Guard officer, Randy Watkins, reported that one night when he was there by himself, he heard someone calling his name from upstairs. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. 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 Red flags. Already. Some people have even reported seeing the ghost of a tall, bearded man in a raincoat and rain hat. But this ghost would polish brass and clean the windows. So kind of like, you know, the ghost Kate's story was helping out. Yeah, a good ghost. A good ghost. But the odd thing is, only women could see this ghost. Mm, A good sexual ghost. He might have a little sexual trouble. We'll get into it. Yeah. Okay. So, some I don't know who, someone named the ghost Ernie. He just goes by Ernie. But people have done some research, and they think his name was actually John Randolph. But I'm just going to keep calling him Ernie. So Ernie was a keeper of the lighthouse sometime in the 1920s or 30s up until his death. So while he was working at the lighthouse all by himself, he became so distraught because his wife had left him for a local ferry captain. Ernie had jumped from the top to his death and his body was never found. So That'll do. Likely in the water. Yeah. But... When the Coast Guard left the lighthouse, an officer wrote the following little note, leaving it behind. It said, quote, Rock of slow torture, Ernie's domain, hell on earth. May new London Ledges lighthouse shine on forever because I'm through. I'll watch it afar from drinking a brew. End quote. A little rhyme. A little poem. A little poem. A little hmm. poem. About hell. <laughs> hell on a rock. And beer. Okay. And beer. Of course. 
So this lighthouse has become a bit of a tourist attraction, of course. You can go, like, actually do tours and stuff on it. Um, and it's kind of a thing for, like, kids to just take a little boat and go out there by themselves in the middle of the night mm. for a spooky mm. time. Mm. So this is what 21-year-old Sophia McKenna and her 20-year-old friend Spencer Mugford did on May 26, 2018. So Sophia and Spencer, they were exes at one point. I'm not exactly sure when they dated, but they remained friends. And at this time, Sophia had gotten back together with a different ex. Little context. So in the middle of the night on the May 26th, the two parked Sophia's car at the Yukon Avery Point campus. And this is weird to me, being in the South, used one of the university sailboats to go to the lighthouse. Okay. I don't know if you could just like borrow a sailboat from your school. Didn't, didn't think that was, no, didn't no. think that was a thing. So while out on the water, Sophia used Spencer's phone to post a video to his Snapchat. And you can see Spencer paddling and Sophia painting the camera like back to the shore, like kind of around. Um, they'll find out later, but Sophia had left her phone in her car at campus. So it was just Spencer with the only one with the phone. At 2 a.m., Spencer posted a photo on a Snapchat of Sophia posing in front of the no trespassing sign with her tongue out. This was the last time Sophia was seen again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. By Sunday afternoon, people began to get concerned as they hadn't heard from the two. Apparently there was some sort of event they needed to go to. And Sophia's mom, Michelle, had checked her phone and found some odd missed calls. Michelle had seven missed calls at 2.05 a.m., 2.06, 2.07, three calls at 2.08, and at 2.09 from an unknown number. Michelle called the number and realized it was Spencer's number, which she didn't have, and Spencer most likely did not have her number saved, so it was believed it was Sophia making the calls on Spencer's phone. The Coast Guard soon went out to the lighthouse, and they found Spencer's shirt tied to the base of it. It was of their opinion that the shirt was used to tie the boat up, and there were no signs of the two at the lighthouse or any nearby water. Almost 48 hours went by, and the sailboat actually washed ashore in Long Island. There was nothing belonging to the two on the boat. Two and a half weeks went by without any clues, until Spencer's body was found floating in the water two and a half miles away from the lighthouse. It was determined Spencer had drowned. So Sophia's body has never been found. Hmm. Yeah. So the investigation has led to the belief that sometime between two, when the Snapchat photo was posted, and 2.05 when the phone calls were made, the boat likely like slipped out of the shirt and went off. And people believe Spencer dove into the water to get the boat leaving Sophia at the lighthouse, and that's why she was making the phone calls. Sophia's family said she wasn't a strong swimmer, and she definitely wouldn't have, like, jumped into the cold, dark water after Spencer, you know? Yeah. Are you frustrated, Kate? Why would you be out there if you can't swim? Like... That's a good question. I just don't... You wouldn't be on a sailboat if you can't swim. Like, that's just... I think she can swim. I don't know rough choppy waters on the ocean swim maybe this is frustrating that's a, yeah. a I dumb, mean, no. dumb thing being able to swim is different than being able to swim in like open water you know 
Very different. <laughs> you do know, Holly. Yeah. You do know. Yeah. Our little triathlon survivor. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they also believe Sophia was making those frantic calls. Um, it drained the cell phone battery, leaving Sophia alone at the lighthouse in the dark without any way to leave. Um, so Spencer's phone, which she had, has also never been found. There so how no- long in between when she was missing did they like search the lighthouse? I think the next day. Okay. And she was already not there. Yeah. So I guess when they figured out they're missing and they saw their Snapchats that they were at the lighthouse, the Coast Guard went out. And she's already gone. Okay. Already gone. And there's also no reports of people hearing anyone screaming for help. So there are people like out in the water, like fishermen Mm -hmm. and stuff. And like, they aren't too far from shore. If someone was screaming, Mm -hmm. would have heard. No one heard anything. Um, Another thing that is odd is that two other local men drowned in the same body of water later that week, and their bodies were found the next day. Sophia's still not found. So this is why people believe Sophia was either taken from the lighthouse or some kind of paranormal entity like Ernie was involved. If you recall, Ernie had committed suicide after his wife had left him for another man. Sophia had recently broken up with Spencer to get back with his ex. And that was the story of the haunted New London Ledge Lighthouse and the missing case of Sophia McKenna. Ooh. That was Y'all, please, please go look up this lighthouse. It is the weirdest yeah. looking. You said it's third, it's 53 feet tall? 58 feet or tall. Or something. It's a tiny little baby lighthouse yeah yeah i'm not sure if the 58 feet tall is like including the block it's on i think the house is 58 feet tall on top okay, of the okay. block. i, was like, yeah. I feel like little. there's there is either like she jumped in the water and drowned mm-hmm. spooky happened or the she was taken but the problems with the two normal theories is like i would wait it out you know if i couldn't swim and I would be waiting on that island until I had no food, no water, like had nothing left but to jump in the water. And she, if they came looking for her the next day and she wasn't there, that didn't happen. And then it would be a huge coincidence for her to get kidnapped off of the island in less than 24 hours, you know? So like, yeah, that's weird. Also, it's like they have tours there. Even, mm-hmm. I guess even if it was like a weekend or, or something like that, wasn't going to be a tour the next day i would think someone would figure out i was there at some point yeah i would say i'm wondering like in my head you know i love spooky thoughts but in my head for this case i'm wondering if spencer dove in to get the boat Mm -hmm. he started drowning and she sees that and she tries to get in and go get him and then like she, she done she done dad you know, but yeah, the missing body. body. Yeah, yeah, I will say the body yeah. thing is weird for one to like show up and then the other to not. But it's also, it's ocean, you guys. Like we don't. Yeah, there's whole planes that aren't found. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole other video. Yeah, yeah. Check us out on our conspiracy theory. I mean, no, is I'm there? I don't know, but yeah. But no, no, no. There's definitely a lot of things that could happen. Yeah. But the body not showing up sucks because that's not really helpful towards any case but 
yeah um, also when people drown they and like when someone's trying to help them they end up like trying to drown the other person on accident yes. you know yeah you're yes. driving them yeah yeah especially but, if you're not a good swimmer mm-hmm. i think if they drowned in the same spot the current would take them to the same place true Wait, or no you answer. got are there sharks shark sharks yeah I mean, of- yeah, but why take one body and not the other? Like feeding fest, you know? Yeah, piggy ah, eaters. That's so bad. Piggy eaters. Piggy yeah. eaters. Yeah. Thanks, Kylie. Love and unsolved. Oh, great. You know I love them. But of course, I'm gonna say the best for last. Holly has oh. one more spooky story to tell us. Last spooky story. Um, so yeah, like Kate said in advance, this is a raw episode and I will for sure be the one to mess up the most because that's how it goes. So, um, be patient. Um, okay. So mine is a kind of another little spooky structure. It is a haunted hospital. So let's dive in. Love Love it. Love it already. Take me there. So, tucked away in the small town of Vicksburg, Mississippi, stands a huge abandoned hospital called the Coon Memorial State Hospital. It is a huge antebellum-style hospital that is now dilapidated and decaying. The building seems to look like the residents of the hospital just suddenly disappeared. Chairs, beds, and equipment look frozen in time where they were once left one day. For over a century, This was a place for poor citizens of Mississippi to receive medical attention. The hospital started in 1832 in response to a smallpox outbreak and um, was named at this time the Vicksburg City State Hospital. It was in a it was a suburban estate with a substantial house in 1847. Not really sure what a substantial house is, but that's what they called it. It was run by Dr. George K. Bichette and later his grandson and great-grandson. It was a large antebellum-style building. The hospital was then used during the Civil War to treat injured soldiers, and several wounded died during the Civil War, and several were treated here. The hospital um, also treated victims of yellow fever. Yellow fever uh, is carried by mosquitoes and occurred mostly during the summer months following the Civil War. The 1878 yellow fever epidemic in the United States was the worst in Mississippi. It devastated Mississippi socially and economically. The whole community, whole communities fled their homes. Some towns like Vicksburg became ghost towns. And by the year, by the end of the year, 3,227 people roughly had died from the disease here. Um, The state took over the hospital in 1871, and the institution was renamed the State Charity Hospital at Vicksburg. During this time, the hospital was used for many things, including housing for Confederate soldiers. These Confederate soldiers were built a special annex in 1901, and they occupied the halls of this annex um, for 17 years until 1918, when it mysteriously burned down. Then the University of Mississippi operated its first medical school here in the academic year from 1910 to 1911. Then in 1954, someone left their entire fortune to a hospital, which is odd in itself. 
A former resident of Vicksburg named Lee Kuhn died and left his estate of $400,000 to the Vicksburg Charity Hospital. Oddly, he also left in his will uh, a memo that directed a seven-person committee to be formed to be composed of three Jews, two Catholics, and two Protestants to decide the way to disperse the money for the hospital, which is odd. We love I mean, at least they're like, everybody gets opinion, you know? Yes. A little odd, but yeah. So the committee of these people decided that the new building would be the best use of the money, would be the best use of the money. And in 1959, the institution opened a large new facility kind of added on to but also replacing a little bit of the original building and the institution was renamed in honor of Mr. Kuhn, the Kuhn Memorial State Hospital. Okay, so 1989, due to political and financial issues, the hospital unfortunately closed its doors for good, leaving it vacant. It was vacant for decades and it just basically started to decay. The vacant hospital began spurring rumors that it was haunted, attracting paranormal investigators from all over. The hospital was even investigated on the TV series Ghost Asylum. September 2014, the Mississippi Paranormal Research Institute visited the abandoned hospital and claimed to have captured strange happenings, including the recording of a little girl asking, do you want to come play with me? No. 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 Nothing. Yeah. Good. You just close the door. No. Yeah. There were ghost hunters that claimed their K2 meters lit up many times in the hospital, and they actually claimed they were able to successfully communicate with the dead. In June 2015, another group of ghost hunters were searching around the hospital when they noticed an actual trail of blood. The ghost hunters followed the trail. The trail ran all the way through the building and down a flight of stra- stairs and straight outside. The ghost hunters followed the trail all the way until it led them into a wooded area. They continued to follow the blood until at the end of the trail, they found a real-life body. Oh, wait. (laughs) Wait, didn't think that was coming. Yes. So, a fresh body? Pretty fresh. Yeah. We love a fresh fresh. body. Yep. (laughs) Not a mannequin, a body. So, hmm. They called the police, obviously, and reported that they had stumbled upon the body of a young woman. Blood appeared to be coming from from a wound to the woman's head. It appeared that the woman had been dragged down from the second floor in the middle of the building to the grassy area outside. She had been bludgeoned to death and hidden in the bushes. The body was identified by the state crime lab to be the body of 69-year-old Sharon Wilson. Oh, no. What was Sharon? What year? This was 2015? Yes. 2015. Yes. So Sharon Wilson had been reported missing the day before the ghost hunters discovered her body. She had been last seen around 9 p.m. on that Saturday night by a couple who visited her home. She was reported missing around noon the next day on Sunday. Police said that it appeared that there had been some kind of disturbance at Wilson's home. Sharon's car was missing, so it was reported stolen. In the meantime, officers pulled over a 2012 Nissan SUV for reckless driving. 
When the officers came to the window, he found that there was one male driver and one passenger in the car, and there was blood on the car. The men in the car were identified as cousin Akim McLeod and Raphael McLeod. When the officers ran the plates of the car, it showed that the car had been recently reported stolen and that it belonged to Miss Sharon Wilson. Mm. Police checked on Sharon and obviously found out that Sharon, along with her car, had been reported missing, and the two were immediately taken into custody. Raphael was actually on the run at the time. He had escaped from prison. He had been convicted of auto burglary in 2002, grand larceny in 2003, an armed robbery in 2005. He received a suspended sentence on the grand larceny charge and was sentenced to 10 years on the robbery with four years to serve and five years probation. So like nothing. So yeah. But he's also an escapee. He escaped, yes. So he's on the run. Yeah. So Raphael admitted that he had stalked Sharon for at least one day, watching her house. He was there while she was entertaining her friends, the ones that were the last ones to see her alive. He waited and watched, and it was reported that he also may have known kind of where she lived and the things around her house because he had done yard work for her, possibly. And that night, after all her friends had left, Wilson was alone in her home. Raphael found her spare key and and entered her home. He kept Wilson hostage in her home all night until around 5 a.m. when he forced her into her car and drove her to the abandoned Coon Hospital. He said that he took her to this hospital because he believed if people, because he believed if people in the area heard a shooting that they would not call the police. So I assume this is probably in a pretty bad area where if you heard gunshots or Mind you know, somebody screaming that yeah. nobody would really do anything. Um, it is believed that Sharon Wilson was killed in the hospital and then her body was dragged down the stairs and outside into the woody grassy area behind the hospital, leaving blood marks down to the woods all over the hospital floor. Raphael was arrested and charged with capital murder, rape, and sexual battery, possession of a weapon as a felon, arson, home invasion, and burglary. He was held in the jail without bond. Damn. (laughs) That's a... Yeah, he's not getting away with any of that. Yeah, no. He'd also assaulted her before he killed her, too. So, mm-hmm. and we don't Love know. It. I don't think we know if that happened in the hospital or if that was at her home. But doesn't matter. That happened as well. Yeah. So, as you remember, he was arrested with his nephew, Akim. And he was in the car when Raphael was pulled over. However, Akim was released. Police were able to account for his whereabouts at the time of Sharon's murder and abduction. Akim claims he was only picked up by his uncle Raphael Sunday morning and his uncle and him were just driving around in Sharon's car, but he had no knowledge of the crime up until that time. So he's not charged. So Raphael is held without bond and the story continues because March 2nd, 2016, the next year, Raphael escaped from the Warren County Jail. Again, what is happening? Yeah, I don't know how he keeps getting out yeah oh he's smart enough to escape twice but he's not smart enough to ride around in his victim's car yeah or like don't kill someone that's a good point don't do that you escape let's not murder someone you got another chance go assume a new identity and live a peaceful life yeah Yeah. exactly 
Yeah. So he does not do that. Um, it was Wednesday around 5.30 a.m. that Raphael used a homemade shank to force a jailer to give him his jail keys, radio, pants, and jacket. McLeod then directed the guard to the bottom floor of the building, and he left through the side door of the jail. This led to a massive eight-day manhunt. Authorities recovered his radio and keys along with orange jail shoes not far from the jail. Raphael was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, the jailer's green pants, and a black jacket. Obviously, the Vicksburg police chief, Walter Armstrong, warned the public that McLeod was extremely, extremely dangerous. 25 officers, the entire sheriff's department, and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigations searched for Cloud for eight days. The city of Vicksburg and the supervisors offered an additional $7,500 to the $2,500 already offered by the Central Mississippi Crime Stoppers for information leading to McLeod's capture. Tips came in and people reported seeing him in different areas across the city, in Claiborne County, and across the Mississippi River in Madison Parish, Louisiana. Then on, Mar then on March 10th, at around 7 a.m., a man was on his way to work. He and his child were out in their garage, starting their car, getting ready to leave for the day, when Raphael McLeod entered the garage from their house. Oh. Oh. Who's yes. in the house? So this is surprising, obviously, to them because he was coming from inside the house already. So he's already broken in and he had broken into the house from an unlocked door. He ordered the man and the child inside where the man's wife was still inside of the home. He then tied up the family, held them hostage and terrorized, terrorized them before forcing them into their bathroom. The family made two 911 calls, but the dispatcher of Madison Parish was unable to relay the calls because they did not know where they originated from. Which I'm confused about this because I didn't think that you had to give your address and I'll tell you why. It's because when my brother and I were little kids, I think I might have like dared him or something. Something happened where Hayden like called 911 and then hung up. They the show phone up. They and show didn't up. think that anything, they showed up. Two officers at our door. We were in huge trouble, but never gave our address, just called and hung up. I guess when it depends I'm on what kind of technology the county has. True. I was also thinking it potentially if they called from a cell phone and the cell phone's not obviously registered like if you're not calling from the house phone that's registered to that address maybe they yeah. could ping it in enough time like cell phone mm -hmm. what that's what I was thinking too is yeah and they're also in Mississippi yeah but this is recent so it's not it's not yeah it's not old yeah. so um yeah. look i looked into it a little bit more and they said that the reason that they couldn't dispatch officers was a problem with the cell phone providers equipment that mm -hmm. should have sent the call to um the vicksburg but sent it to a different county yeah so anyways it's really wow. i don't know it's like they're sitting there making 911 calls and no one's coming for help and they're just tied up in their bathroom yeah it's going to so, be the worst. There was a saving grace for the family. And I'm sure we'll all love this because the family had a dog. Yes. I and, knew this was coming. <laughs> yes. And the dog was extremely scared and anxious. Okay. As the dog all. ends up pooping in the house. Okay. All right. So Good while out. the family's tied up in the bathroom, this dog poops in the house. As if this is Raphael's largest problem that he has, he's very upset about this dog poop in the house. It triggers him. 
and he orders the wife to get up and clean it up. So the wife runs out of the bathroom. She pretends like she's going to go clean up this after this dog. She runs into the bedroom or the bathroom and she grabs a nine millimeter handgun. Hell yeah. And she shoots his ass. What? Yes. <laughs> then she hands the gun to her husband, who shoots Raphael several more times. The husband then runs out of the house and flags down a motorist who calls 911. At 7:16 a.m. That morning, police finally received this 911 call that the family had shot and killed Raphael McLeod. And he was killed in 2016. The murder that occurred in the haunting hospital led to its demolition in February 2019. And that is the story of the body found in the haunted Mississippi hospital. I, I didn't see this one coming. A good ending. <laughs> what an ending. Yeah. Right? dang what a badass wife man I know. Like, that's good stuff she was like i'm gonna grab the gun and i'm gonna shoot him and then the husband was like i'm gonna shoot him some more yep just for the heck of it wow. good job holly that was a good one that was a good yeah. one lots of uh, twists and turns i don't want to say that i'm sad the hospital isn't there because it's probably a good thing it's demolished but if you look at the pictures Holy moly. Creepy. Creepy. Gnarly. Yeah. Well, and they, uh, an article I read also said that they wanted to rebuild another charity hospital in its place. So, I mean, on the same property. Be haunted as well. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to be. Yeah. 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 It's all going to be haunted. Yeah. Good stuff, ladies. Lots of twists and turns on that one. I loved it because it just, like, I kept researching it and it kept getting crazier. I'm confused as to why he went from, like, stealing cars to murder and hostage i know it's like a jump crazy a lot of stuff going on very going on are we ready for some little ghost stories yes 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 kate do you want to introduce our little special guest yeah so um as you listeners know we often do a segment called overtime at the end. Um, we'll do personal stories or local crime, stuff like that updates. Mm -hmm. But this time we're going to do a little overtime of ghost stories or haunted stories from our experiences in life. And, you know, it's only taken a year and a half for you guys to finally see the face to the name that we have said so many a times. So as my um, story for this week's ghost story, I'm actually going to be br bringing on my husband, Cameron, as our <laughs> special guest. So if you guys give Cameron. a round of applause for Cameron. Come on over, Cam Cam. Say hi. Oh, there he is. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, Kate's gone. <laughs> there we go. I think you guys got to like stick together. Yeah. yeah be attached yeah. so this week um cameron has actually decided well he was asked and he graciously said yes here come on over you got to be in front of the mic too um that he's going to tell a little story from when he was growing up and then he actually has something in common with kylie so cameron start off tell us about your childhood um, from the beginning oh yeah from the beginning so may 11th 19th no i'm just kidding um so yeah 
this mo this mainly happened i don't remember it i was like two years old so this isn't exactly like physically me experiencing this but my family uh grew up in in like the house that i grew up in was very interesting and it was interesting enough to a point where uh, some things happen so pretty much from day one um okay there we go there we go we're just gonna do that for now that's good from day day one of moving in my sister and they moved in when my sister was i think nine or ten she's 10 years older than me so she was 10 and she picked her room out or whatever uh, it was like a three bedroom two and a half bath i don't know three bedroom two bath so um she picked a room. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so she picked a room and from there she was like growing up in it. Well, when she was about 11 years old, I was just born. I was one. She started seeing or not seeing, but she started feeling something in the room. And specifically, she started feeling like like someone else was in there. She did say that she felt like another person was in there. So she told my parents this and they kind of just blew it off as like an 11 year old who is just like scared of something either she saw a movie or something so they were like yeah okay like it's okay they got her nightlights they got her all sorts of stuff well like a year later my parents would like wake up and come out in the living room from their bedroom and my sister would be on the couch and they'd be like what's going on and she's like i don't want to sleep in my room and she's they're like why and they're like she kept saying like I, there's like something going on in there and she's 11 there she's like something's going on in, in my room and they were like, okay. And after a couple of weeks of this, they're like, all right, this is getting a little weird. And then they asked her like, what are you experiencing in your room? What's the thing that's making you scared? And she said, she felt when she was in her bed, she felt someone sit on the edge of her bed and then mm -hmm. blow in her face. Ooh. So it'd feel like someone sat next to her and went like, and like blew in her face and would like wake her up. And she said it continuously, she'd feel this. So after about, I'd say about three weeks of her sleeping on the couch, my mom and my dad were like, we got to do something about this. Like something's going on in this room. And, uh, oh, and in her closet, she had a, a shoe rack and it wasn't like a fancy shoe rack, but it was a nice shoe rack. It fell one time. So my dad like put extra screws in it, made it a little tougher and it just kept falling. And that was like, something that was weird in her closet so so fast forward like a month after this my parents were like we got to do something like she's not sleeping in her room what are we going to do and at the time my mom was like she's still religious but she was definitely a little bit more religious so she called a priest the priest came out and blessed the whole house specifically that room and from then on she kind of was like okay to sleep in there um so then time passes or whatever she gets older and then she moves out and me being the little sibling that was a bigger room i was like i want to take that room so i do i'm like 11 years old she's out of the house so i'm in that room and i start feeling weird things in this room <laughs> like the closet area makes noises it's so the closet was a sliding it was a sliding glass mirror. Yeah. So there's three doors. And like, if you wanted to open it, you had to scoot it all the way over and like find a gap or so, so it was like that. So I just remember hearing things in that closet. 
Um, there were like pipes and stuff behind the walls there that like went to the garage and the kitchen, but I don't know. It was always just like weird, especially at night. But specifically, I remember I was 11 years old and the way the bed, my bed was facing, you can look into the living room from my bed. And I remember laying in bed. It was probably late. It was like, I don't know, 9 30, 10 o'clock, which was like late when I was 11. My parents were already in bed and I just remember like I couldn't fall asleep. I remember I didn't fall asleep yet. So I was just like laying in bed, tossing and turning. And I started to like get cold and stuff. And I looked out into the living room and this is when I saw like smoke rolling in. And this is like the first and only time I've ever had sleep paralysis, which oh. is if you, have you guys had sleep paralysis? No, thank God. I have one time actually. It's like a horror movie. It's literally yeah. horrific. Well, I had it and I remember sitting there frozen in fear like what is going on I, I like sat up but I w- couldn't really move but I can like move my head so I sat up and I was looking in the living room and it was dark and like smoke started rolling in or fog or whatever you want to call it and I swear to god like a figure I couldn't see make out details but I saw like a silhouette of like a guy on like a horse or something come into the living room and like it, he like slowly came in the living room and he like his shoulders like turned towards me and right there, I was screaming, but I couldn't make a noise. But I was screaming for my parents. And this is like a vivid memory. Like, I, to this day, it freaks me out. But I was screaming for my mom and dad. Couldn't make a noise. But like, in my head, I'm trying to scream. And it like turns towards me. I couldn't really make out a head. So I don't know if he had a head or not. But he like turned towards me. And then he went through our sliding glass door through our living room, which is like out to the backyard. And he like went through it, disappeared. And then like, I just kind of laid back down. I laid there for another like two hours. Like, was that a dream? Was that real? I I don't remember falling asleep because I got back up once that was done. And I went to my parents' room and I was like, I'm sleeping in here. Like, I need you guys to scoot the hell over. Cause and you were, you were also 11 when this occurred, which is the same age as Michelle when she was in the house and stuff happened to her. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like something is in this freaking house. So for like the next week or so, I definitely slept with my parents and they were like, we got to figure out what the hell's going on. And then you uh, get a second priest. No, we never cross, got it. Right? Yeah, we have we had crosses everywhere. So we had a cross <laughs> in between. So like the room she was in was here. A bathroom was in between us and then my other room was there or like the other bedroom so we had a cross split the two rooms and then there was a cross above my sister's bed that she left when she moved out so it was above my bed there were crosses everywhere it was freaking weird yeah. and it was a really old house on a really weird area of land in florida it was like known for like indians and native americans it's probably one of those you stole their land i know the neighborhood was called i don't want to like dox the neighborhood but it was like a you can it's okay you don't live there right yeah. I don't live yeah, anywhere. Yeah. it was called yeah. indian creek that was the name mm. of the neighborhood so. and i went to this house one only once i think before your family sold it yeah at the beginning of our relationship and um i remember that cross because i remember saying something because i was like cameron so this cross was just off just a little bit you know like when it's not straight and you're like just mm. move that picture kind of thing it's just a little crooked and they, Cameron and Michelle always say, like his sister Michelle always say, yeah, like it was never, it was just always. It was a weird house. Yeah, it was all weird. Yeah. Wait, did you know about like the ghost with Michelle or were you too young or did you like find out later? I found out later. I found out when I was like 16. Oh, so you went, mm-hmm. you had no idea when all that happened. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I was, I, I mean, I, I never came up when I was little. And then when it started happening, my dad was like, 
this happened once before. And I was like, what the <laughs> hell? They didn't tell me this. Yeah. Kept a big secret. Yeah. 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 That's more believable, though, that you didn't know about your sister's experience, you know? No, I didn't, yeah. That you didn't just make it up. Not, like, that you made it up on here, but I mean, like, in your head as a kid. Right, yeah. Yeah. It's not, like, thinking, like, oh, this is exactly what happened. So, yeah, no, it was weird. And that was, I've never had sleep paralysis after that. I've never had it. That was the one and only time I've ever had it. And it was, like, when people talk about it, I'm, like, I know what it feels like. It's scary as Mm -hmm. hell. And, like, also, Cameron is, like, for all the listeners, because the girls know this, like, Cameron is... He, lo- he loves us. He loves that we do crime, stuff like that. But, like, I wouldn't say you're, like, into s- ghosts and shit. Like, you're you're kind of, like, you have to believe it to see it kind of thing. Kind of, the same with, like, you, Holly. Like, he's on yeah. the same level as you. And so I remember hearing this story when I first met Cameron. And, like, y- if you guys are watching, you'll see me giggle throughout the whole story. Because it's just so funny that, like, of all people, this is Cameron telling this story. You know, yeah. like, it's just his one and done. That was your one story. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't experienced anything else since then. And, like, yeah, that was the, yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. But that was the one and only time I was I truly felt that, like, something else other than the house. Like, something was in that house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very weird. So. so that's Cameron's story for today. Now, Kylie does have something that him and her were both related with. But, um... As you listeners all know, my husband loves to golf and he actually has a tea time in five minutes. So we're going to let him bounce out for the day. So everybody say bye to Cam and I'll film her in a spot with Kylie's story. So say bye. Love ya. Bye. Our first guest. (laughs) So yay, Cameron finally made an appearance. He did good. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he did good. He did good. He did good. Yeah. That story, I will say like, I mean, you guys know Cam. He's not like, oh, I love spooky stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he, I just remember him being like, it was a headless man on a horse. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? That's <laughs> funny. I've had sleep paralysis before one time, and it's no joke. Like, it's actually freaky. Um, thank God I've never had it. So that sounds terrifying. And for those, because I don't think we really explained it, but like if you don't know what sleep paralysis is, is like you're awake but you can't move or breathe or talk. You can breathe, but you're trying yep. to move and you can't. But you're wide awake and fully aware. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I think I've heard it, and I I may butcher this, but I have heard before that it is when your circadian rhythms get off. Like there's a scientific reason behind it. Look at you. Yeah, I mean I could totally be wrong about that, but. I think I've heard that before, that it has something to do with, like, your brain when you're sleeping and it getting, like, confused on if you're awake or asleep, and that's why you feel like you're awake, but you your body's telling you you're asleep. And you, do you guys know a famous person that has had multiple sleep paralysis episodes before? You? Our favorite, Kim Kardashian. Oh. <laughs> yes. She has had, she's, like, open about it, she, that she's had multiple sleep paralysis, like, things. Like her brain's very busy, so that makes sense. Right, yeah. That's why I have had it. There's nothing going on. Okay, so I just looked it up. It says sleep paralysis is a temporary loss of muscle control just after falling asleep or before waking up. It frequently involves hallucinations or feelings of suffocation. No one knows exactly why uh, or exactly what causes sleep paralysis, but it is linked to sleep disorders and medical conditions. That's a no for me, dog. Nope. Yeah. Mm-mm. Only no happened thanks. one time, but 
Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. It's very like creepy. Yeah. For sure. So Kylie, do you want to tell your Florida story? Yeah, it's not as juicy as Cam's or as yeah. detailed, but yeah. this was like the moment that made me believe in ghosts. Because before I was like, I mean, it would be cool if ghosts are real, but I'd never seen one, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I think I was in like middle school or something. My dad took me up to St. Augustine. You know, I think we talked about it before. Like beautiful. the oldest city in America, beautiful, but very haunted. And um, of course, we did like the, the night ghost tour around a little trolley, like around town. And they take us by the lighthouse. And there's like a little playground at the base of the lighthouse. Kind of weird, like a little park. We're on the trolley and it's summer. It's There's no wind. It's kind of like foggy, whatever. And one swing, when we like start going near it, it just goes boop, boop, boop. And then just dead stopped. Like didn't come slowly to a stop, just stopped. And I was like, okay, let's get off the trolley. Yeah, I'd be like, faster, <laughs> faster. <laughs> Let's go back to the hotel. I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when I met Kate and Cam in Little Rock, and I was talking about it, Cam, the exact same thing happened to Cam on the same tour years before. Yeah, same location, Holly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, because I remember Cameron was like, wait, my sister and I were in St. Augustine, same, like, and they re- they vividly remember a swing like going mm-hmm. and it just dead stopped of course in my head i'm like is there a mechanics that's supposed to do this is you know kind of thing i don't know it's like a park open to the public it is yeah so like it's yeah. a kind of park it's yeah. not like part of the tour you know no yeah that holly we gotta get you to st augustine though it's beautiful you love I it i know i've had I, i'm a i'm a ghost skeptic you know like i'm open to it i like the idea of it the spookiness you know but i just haven't had an experience i'm not popular with the ghost community if you will we gotta get you somewhere yeah yeah we can find some did i um i can't remember if i did it on the podcast or not because i don't want to repeat it but did i tell you guys about the ghost tour on the uss in charleston Oh, yeah. That yeah. Cam and I went to. Holly, do you remember yes, this? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Uh, but did I, so, okay, I remember telling that story, but, like, did you, did I tell you guys about the dog at the end? That, like, that part of the tour at the end, the guy, the guide was like, oh, yeah, and then there's a ghost of Scrappy the dog. Oh, yes, yes. Scrappy didn't even die on the boat. See, it's stuff like that, Holly, where I'm like, Cam and I are like, Scrappy, come here, Scrappy. Like, we want to see a dead <laughs> yeah. dog ghost, you know, kind of thing. And then at the very end, the guy was like, yeah, but he died, like, in the Philippines. Like, had a long life, 17 years. And we're like, like oh, he's not on the ship. How did, he, how did he get to Charleston? <laughs> how did he get to Charleston? Like, why is he haunting this ship? That makes no sense. So, great. some of it, you just have to, like, I get it. You, yeah. people are usually skeptics until you see something yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, or mm-hmm. go through an event. Or, I mean, just a lot of true crime. Like, we... There's a show that the three of us all watch called um, Unsolved Mysteries that comes out on Netflix. And there's a few episodes. I think they have like four seasons or whatever it is now. But there's a few episodes for you listeners that have made us all think about some things that we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. They always make me think and are like, okay, that couldn't be a coincidence. But I just still, I have that block where I'm like, if I can't 
see it or experience yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Something I always think about is that, um, like coincidences, but if it happens to, mo- if the same coincidence happens to multiple people who are not related, like in any mm-hmm. type of way, then mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, I don't understand how that's possible. You know, like yeah. same group or not to get into UFOs, but one of the unsolved mysteries was about UFOs. And it was like a whole effing town, like saw something and was reporting it. And it like, none of these people knew each other and they didn't know anybody had called the cops until like the next day, you know? So like Mm -hmm. stuff like that, it makes me think. Yeah. Yeah. So I get it, but I assume Holly, you don't have any ghost stories then. No, I don't. I, I say next year, next Halloween yeah. special, we take Holly on a ghost tour. We'll do it live. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll live. live stream it. Yeah. We'll live stream yes. it. Yeah. Holly's we'll, revelation. We'll take the GoPro. We'll put it on Holly's head, like the hat thing. So you just see her face and reaction, like walking around, like at a ghost. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That'll be good. There's a lot of places we could take you, but. Yeah, you got to experience something. So mm-hmm. we'll just um, keep doing it until you see a ghost. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't we just lock her in a sane asylum? Like, let's just and let her yeah, just... experience it for herself. Exactly. Yeah. So we can arrange that. Yeah. But let's see. So, Halloween, you guys doing anything crazy tonight? Tonight? I'm actually going to see the Taylor Swift movie. At the drive-in theater. That's so cute. You have a drive-in theater? Yeah, and I haven't been yet. And I've been scared to go watch it because on TikTok, like, everyone's, like, up singing and dancing. I'm like, I want to, like, watch it. At least I can, like, lock my car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, when you do a drive-in theater, does it play through the radio station? Yeah, there's a radio station instead of, like, the speaker. So you can, like, roll your windows up if people start singing and dancing? Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm sure there will still be some. But... I don't think many kids will be there on Halloween, so that's why I picked it. Oh, that's true. That's really smart, actually. No. Yeah. So my neighborhood, Cam and I's neighborhood here in Jupiter, goes hard for holidays. Um, Kylie got to see that over the weekend when she came down. And every house, like, has decorations. And this is the first year that we're going to be here in this neighborhood for Halloween. Because last year, um, we were you got married. married. We were yeah. getting married. Um yeah on Halloween weekend but last year I put out a bowl of candy and I came back and the, there was still a bowl of candy so I had my suspicions I was like what <laughs> what happened but this year a few days ago I messaged on our neighborhood Facebook like page and I was like hey is Halloween like are the kids gonna be out on Tuesday like is or is it like the Sunday before and we had like 15 people comment and they were like get ready the kids are cr- like it's gonna it's a madhouse it's amazing and I didn't want to like be the one to be like well no one came to my house last year so um yeah but I hope they come I'm ready the dogs are ready it's gonna be a good time I was thinking about putting out a, a table outside so that people don't ring the doorbell for the dogs oh, but maybe doing that instead of just chilling outside because then people will see me that I have candy I love trick-or-treaters so I'm excited I love it are you gonna dress up um I'll probably dress up just because you know it's me Cam will probably be upstairs playing video games 
Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll keep the dogs with him as much as they, maybe I'll bring like Nora out with me. Cause she's very, Nora and Finley are very people and kid friendly, but like they, Finley gets really overwhelmed. So maybe I'll put Nora in one of her costumes and bring her outside with me. Love um, it. Yeah. I'll take pictures if I do, but very excited. Love trick or treaters. Halloween's one of my favorite times of the year. Kate usually throws a banger of a Halloween party every year. I do. So. I do. This year, um, I was not allowed to throw my own banger. So <laughs> Cam and I, we've been together. We've been only married for a year, but we've been together eight years almost. And every year we always do a Halloween party. That's like our thing. That and like Polish Christmas kind of stuff. And this year, because I am eight and a half months pregnant as we speak, Cameron was like, I don't want to throw the party. Like, it's going to be way too much on you. So what we did instead is one of my local girlfriends, shout out Alex Mustapik and her husband, Dave. They were like, hey, we'll throw the party at our house, but you can also do whatever you want. So I got to throw a Halloween party at somebody else's house and it was great. And we'll have to upload our costumes to social media because it was- Tell the listeners what you guys were. So Kylie came down to Jupiter and we'll put, we'll insert a picture. We'll insert a picture right here. Oh right God. Here. I don't want this up on the internet forever. Oh no. It's going to absolutely be on the internet. Um, so Cameron, Kylie and I dressed up as the blue man group and it was, excuse me, but so fucking good. Like it was absolutely hilarious. Get ready to see the picture. Um, we're big into costumes every year and we try to do something like people don't think. So this was a good one. Kylie joined in on the costume this year and it was fucking hilarious. People were definitely surprised. They were absolutely, because I will say I am also, like I said, I'm eight and a half months pregnant. So when you think of a Halloween costume for a pregnant lady, you're like, oh, she's going to paint her tummy a pumpkin or, you know, something like that. And boom, we showed up as the blue man group. Tummy wasn't included in the costume, which makes it even better. Like it was great. It was great. So Next year, we already have an idea. We're not going to say it, though, but we already have an idea. We'll tell you later, Holly, if you want to join in on it. So There's room for Holly to join this one. There is, because this is technically a four-person costume. Yeah. Yeah. So So that's it. Perfect. Wait, what are your Halloween plans, Holly? I don't really have any right now. Boo. (laughs) You need to find something. Go find a ghost. Go out, go, what is it, Tuesday night? Go to a little bar or something. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably do something on Tuesday night. We were going to do, like, there's a little, like, Harvest Fest uh, downtown, but it's storming right now in Little Rock. And so, oh. so it's rained out. We were thinking about doing that later on. Well, just, but. if you guys don't do anything, just for shits and giggles, put put the dogs in some costumes. Oh, yeah. Take some pics for us. Uh, Holly has two wiener dogs. They're the best things we've ever seen. So Halloween's. Those are like the best dogs for costumes. Yes. Yeah. And they accept their fate. So. Yes. Are you guys ready to wrap this up? This was a good one, you guys. This was so fun. Y'all will have to go on YouTube and watch our first little Halloween special episode. And if, if it's a hit, then we'll keep doing videos because this was kind of fun. And if it's not, we'll still do the videos because we'll the videos. we're trying we're our best, you guys. Yeah, yeah, and also no editing. So that helps us out a lot. Yeah. 
Good. Look, a little uh, snaps for us for getting through a whole episode with not no edits, you know? Look at us go. We're growing. Yeah. We hope you have enjoyed our Halloween special. And we hope you all have a very scary, but also happy Halloween. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.